On today's program, Jim Deeds teaches us from his experience-driven knowledge of investing and common sense just how important it is to acquire silver today. The McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. What you're talking about is you're dealing in something on both sides that people need. And if you're looking ahead at the future, you'd say, if I can't buy a silver coin, I would sure like to have a small farm somewhere. You can come up with a lot of different answers. But if you start to have questions about the money and your trust in the money, then your basic needs become very, very important. And to focus on need, I think, might be the investment area to look at now. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. I'm eager, Dave, because Jim Deeds called. He's been calling over and over and over this last month or two, and he's been saying, are you guys paying attention to silver? Are you even looking at what's going on? And this is a man who we have on on a regular basis, has a relationship with your family and a history with your family. But what we know Jim to be is a value investor, and he's also a position investor, and he teaches people how to take a position in something that makes sense and then just watch. But his emphasis is on that which is undervalued. And it's no longer arguable that the markets, stock and bond markets, and real estate to some degree, these markets today are overvalued. Right. What is argued is whether some new event, whether it's a tax policy shift, a fiscal shift, whether those things will change the revenue streams of the companies in the broader indexes and raise their prices even higher, with some justification, of course, if those hypothetical events do come to pass. Well, and you have to look for an investment that is commonsensical, okay? We live in a different day and age where it's very technological, and people will say, oh, price earnings doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how much debt we have in the country. Common sense would tell you that that doesn't work. We highlighted that a few weeks ago when we were talking about GM and Ford making between fourteen and $1,500 a car. Tesla, the new story of the century loses $15,000 a car, but don't let that stand in between you and owning the shares. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what does make sense? Well, what makes sense, I mean, I'll tell you something a family friend shared with me yesterday while at her office. As a person that sets the tone for company culture in his enterprise, he insists that 10% of his employees' time each week is spent bettering themselves and continuing their education. That is four hours of dedicated reading and reflection. That is an investment from his point of view that makes sense. I agree. Well, and you push that here. I mean, honestly, Dave, we have the book a month. We don't always do it every month, but we read numerous books through the year as your employees, and we sit around and discuss the book afterwards. When from the vantage point of this gentleman's coworkers, I think they must appreciate that that sort of investment is sort of a radical departure from the norm of hyper-productivity and micromanagement. And in fact, throughout his office, there are areas where you can go, you can sequester yourself, you can read and you can think, you can learn and you can grow. That is an investment. And that is something that just makes sense. Well, and you know, for years, we read a man named Richard Russell. Richard passed away last year. He lived a very long life. You know, he wrote about Dow theory for over 50 years. And I know I read 30 years of those 50. Education was a critical choice, in his opinion, in where you should continue to invest. And he mirrored John Templeton, whose personal investment in education, I mean, he continues that with his legacy through the Templeton Foundation, but he was always advising. One of the top 10 things that you could invest in was your own 
education. And I think, you know, today we'll expand the scope in terms of what you should be investing in, what just makes sense. Well, and Dave, I have to tell you, I've got a fairly extensive bookshelf like you. There are a number of books that I've bellied up to the bar to pay for that Jim Deeds recommended to me. He is a reader. Well, he's one man that I've known since my teen years and continues to excel at this kind of personal educational growth and development. And and frankly, in areas that stretch beyond sort of balance sheet analysis, macroeconomic reflection, he captures a glimpse of the beautiful. He's looking for the soul-stirring in nature, from behind a lens. And I think that brings a radically different kind of perspective to what Jim Deeds sees when he does happen to be considering a value play Mm -hmm. in a certain asset class. And frankly, what he's done is he's trained himself to see the world from a different perspective. And I appreciate the balance which beauty brings to the sphere of finance, sometimes an area that breeds cynicism and suspicion, but it's an interesting perspective and balance. Well, I've always enjoyed the fact that Jim can key us in on something two, three, four years early so that we can take advantage of it as well. Jim, you know, you've commented and given us perspective in many areas before. When we are looking for an investment that just makes sense, is there a way that you choose an investment? David, I appreciate your introduction. It's amazing that you mentioned photography because it might fit everything we're going to talk about this morning. I enjoyed photography, but never did it as seriously as I have the last 30 years. And that happened when I lost my sight in one eye. (laughs) And I only mention this as a beginning to our program. When I lost sight in one eye, it changed a lot of things that I do. And obviously, photography was something I could do a lot more of. And the point I'm making is that you really don't appreciate what you've got until you lose it, or you're apt to take many, many things around you for granted. I'm sure that most people who are seeing with two eyes never think twice about the fact that they enjoy each day and have a normal life. I won't go any further except to say that once you lose one eye, you every day wake up and say, wow, it is a beautiful world and I can still see it. This is a miracle. Having said that, I would say two things leading into this. I want to talk about silver, but I think two things might be important quickly to say. One is I am two generations, perhaps even close to three generations removed from some of the listeners today. And that's a huge difference. I know your dad has talked about this, and I have as well. A cultural change in America has taken place and continues to take place at a very rapid pace. So things that we see or the perspectives that we have are certainly from behind or from yesteryear. And our challenge, of course, is to update this and to stay on top of what's happening. And then if we can do it best, try to look ahead. And so that's why I wanted and I appreciate the chance to talk with you about silver, because at the moment, silver would be on the lowest level of investment choices, I would guess, with most people. As we look at this sort of two-generation gap from you to many of our listeners, I think I'm somehow in the middle because the things that have influenced you were, to a degree, required reading in our household. I know you've been influenced by Gerald Loeb's book, The Battle for Investment Survival, uh, originally published in 1935. That was required reading in our house. It's a classic. Can you tell us about it? And kind of some perspective that that brings to, again, how you choose an investment. That's a neat question, and it's something I've enjoyed all my life. I went into the investment business, was shortcutted. I went into the investment business, went to work for Dean Witter in 1968. And in 1968, I thought I should read and learn as much as I can. And so there were many investment gurus over the next 30 years that I picked up each one and read what they did, and many different people with different opinions. And I kind of focused that down into three people this morning 
who really effectively directed me in the direction I wanted to go in my investment career, and that was that they were investors. They weren't gurus. They weren't short-term timers. They were amazing people with thoughtful ideas about the art of investment. And of course, as you mentioned, if we look back, Cheryl Loeb's book was really a landmark book in my mind, and I read that, and there were many ideas in the book, but the one idea that came through to me that was with me the rest of my life, he wrote specifically about an ever-liquid account, and he had a chapter written on an ever-liquid account. I won't waste time on that, but I will say only that an ever-liquid account, in his mind, was an ongoing thought process with how he invested his time or his money in the best profitable and positive way he could. So in simple terms, today he would decide, I have five things I'm most interested in. I list them from one to five. Number one is really important to me and down to five. And these are where I'll spend my time or my money. And then what he did, which is reverse of what most people do, was that from that day on, he would look each morning as he got up at what had happened overnight and what was changing in the world. And then he'd ask himself, is number one still number one, or is there a better idea out there? This is an amazing self-correcting way in the investment market or in your life to keep on top of what's happening and to be in tune with change. So I was amazed, and I ran investment portfolios, stock portfolios in that fashion, and usually never had more than three or four or five ideas at the most. And sometimes I'd get down to where I only had all of our money invested in one idea because it was just by far the best. That's why I mentioned silver to you the other day. I think all of a sudden in today's world, silver might be considered as something that might be pretty good. It's interesting because I went to work with Dean Witter 30-something years after you did, and you know the review in my first year at Dean Witter of that required read, The Battle for Investment Survival, gave me a very different perspective on what Wall Street's approach was. And then as we led up to the year 1999, 2000, 2001, what it had become. And because in Loeb's book, he's not afraid of a concentrated position. In fact, he would argue that you keep an eye on the eggs in your basket. And there's no possible way to be an expert on a thousand different eggs in a singular basket. Just know what you know and know it well. And so that idea of sort of refining and reviewing and reanalyzing and making sure that what you own is still worth owning. But if in the end it means you own a concentrated position, I mean, this is one of the scions of Wall Street. He'd say, that's okay. It kind of flies in the face of what we hear from Wall Street today. I would agree with you 100%. And actually, in my lifetime, the, the most successful investments I had, I was always <laughs> pretty much a one-on-one kind of person. I will mention two other people only in this conversation because... You know, I, I saw Joe Granville, I got to know Bobby Prechter, I listened to Stan Weinstein, I listened to many, many different people over that 25-year period with ideas or cues or ideas as to how you might make money in the market. That was the main cause they would talk about. There were only three people, however, that really stuck in my mind as to how to invest. And that's certainly a question that might be in question today as to whether anybody knows how to invest anymore, just trade the market. But on the investment side, which I think is really worth talking about, specifically in relation to silver. On the investment side, the second guy I read, which I got his annual reports when his stock was 150, was Warren Buffett. And I used to get his stock reports every month and read what Warren was doing. And I would only say one thing, which it was so simple. And his whole approach is so simple. And I'm sure people think he's a genius. And he is in simplicity. His whole idea was that you would identify 
as an investment, or you could identify it as a job opportunity, the very best situation out there, the one that would serve the people the best in the years ahead, not today, but in the years ahead. And then he said, number two, wait in the case of stocks until you can buy that investment when nobody else wants it. And so he said, look for a franchise, a franchise that can't be easily duplicated. And, you know, he ended up recently buying Burlington Northern Railroad. You sure can't duplicate that. And he bought Sherman William Paint. You can't duplicate that. So his idea was simple. You look for the leader, the franchise, and then you wait until you can buy it at a point in time when nobody else wants it. The third fellow was the same way, Jimmy Rogers. I read him way back when. Jimmy Rogers was partner with George Soros, and Jimmy Rogers had a different view. He said, you have to look at least two years ahead, and you have to be looking today at what people may want or need two years from now. It was an amazing way of looking at things. Obviously, he and Soros were very, very successful using that approach. And I remember reading at one point, the Israelis had had a seven-day war with Egypt or someone, I don't remember exactly who, but their whole air force had been shot down. And it was kind of a dreary ending to the war. And Jimmy said, if the Russians provided the Egyptians with better aircraft than the Americans could provide for the Israelis, then we're going to have a big change in how we design and make airplanes in America. And I'm going to check out and see which companies will be able to adapt to that change. And he did. And he came up with names that nobody had ever heard of. And that's, of course, how Jimmy Rogers made an awful lot of money as a long-term investor in the markets. Well, I mean, in both cases, when you talk about Warren Buffett, you know, one he has something to say about finding value. And then there's that theme of the value of patience because he's willing to wait. The way you described it, he's willing to wait for the price to be cheap. But then the next ingredient is he's willing to wait for the price to not remain cheap, which means that he spends most of his investment career waiting. It's just so simple when you start thinking about it. You're looking for something that people need and use every day, but then in markets, and stock markets are a little easier perhaps than in life, but in markets, obviously you have the up and down cycles, and so you just have to wait with your idea till the next down cycle appears. You know, in the 2008 cycle when Goldman Sachs was going broke, he bought some Goldman Sachs stock when they needed the money bad. He's a genius at just waiting and being patient. And then what you just said is exactly right. The patience is paid off on the other end because usually those holdings last anywhere from four or five up to 20 years in his investment ideas, and that's a long ways away from what most people are doing today. That's fascinating. I mean, in a world of high-frequency trading, we're fascinated by, and in Wall Street firms practically require you to be in and out 20 times a day. Then you're a good customer. Anything shy of that, you really don't represent value to them. So we're moving into a brave new world you say Jimmy Rogers looks two years out. He taught a course on investing at Columbia University and would have students look at investments that had worked very well. And then he would basically reverse engineer those success stories and have them analyze the factors that they needed to observe in advance in order to predict and thus participate in the investment. So, again, you're talking about looking ahead. Today's not the issue. Tomorrow is what you're looking for. <laughs> you're right. It's exciting and it's fun. <laughs> in my own life, I would only mention two things because they're laughable. My son mentioned them this morning. First one in sales engineering when I got out of the University of Colorado because that's what I took in school. I was selling into the construction market. You know, this is just the way life is. And all of a sudden, I realized I was working with a concrete company, so I was seeing buildings going up. And I realized that on just about every corner, at least in Colorado, we were seeing a new bowling alley being built. This was 1960, believe it or not, way back then. And we were in a recession. And 
bowling alleys was a neat idea because people didn't have to spend much money to go out on a Saturday night and bowl. And I'd look at these bowling alleys going up, and it would always say, Pin Setters by Brunswick by Calendar. So I'd been an investor for some time. I called my stockbroker, neat guy, said, Hank, I'd really like to buy some Brunswick Bach calendar. And he said, what is that? <laughs> These are miracles when they happen. And I said, well, I see they're building bowling alleys, and I think I want to own some. So he did. And the long and the short was, four years later, Brunswick Bach calendar was in the most active list on the New York Stock Exchange every day in the five or ten most active stocks because all of a sudden bowling was out there in front of everyone else. And that paid for my first house. So it was nice to understand how that system worked and I've tried and not always been successful to do that over and over. And that leads us to today, which we hope is a good idea, and that is silver. Silver is yeah. as far out of sight as it's probably been in your life or mine. Would that be right to the average investor? Particularly when you look at values relative to each other. Because, I mean, in terms of price, you could go back to the 1920s and 30s and, you know, you had a $20 gold piece and silver at the classic ratio of 15 to 1 was, you know, right around a dollar thirty an ounce, dollar twenty five per ounce, right? So that's where it was. Now it's 16 to $18, fluctuating in that range here in the last few weeks. Is it more expensive? Is it on anyone's radar? Relative to the rest of the world, it's still dirt cheap. Relative to gold, it's very inexpensive. And it is kind of in an interesting place, a neglected theme. Both metals are, but particularly in the U.S. context. Because, I mean, we look at gold demand in India, for instance, just as an indication of global interest in the metals. Jewelry demand was up 16% last year. Chinese bar and coin demand rose 30% here in the first quarter of this year, according to the World Gold Council. These are cultures that save in ounces. They look at gold and silver as a reliable store of value. In the United States, nobody cares. U.S. Mint numbers are down pretty catastrophically since the beginning of the year. But that's just an indication of where sort of the mindset of the American investor is. They would be the guys who are buying Brunswick not when no one's paying attention, but when it's already hit the most active list. And that's what they're doing in the stock market today. You know, I watch CNBC, obviously, because I'm really still very much involved in enjoying the stock market, and, and I participate. I haven't heard silver mentioned <laughs> in memory <laughs> for a long, long time. And just to back up what you just said, you know, I do read quite a bit, and I saw the Mint came out with a report on both gold and silver American Eagle coins, and in the first four months, sales were down more than 50% in those coins. So obviously, individual investors in America aren't very excited about silver. Then, of course, on the commodity exchange, the report came out a couple of weeks ago that the commodity market, which is where they trade paper, gold and silver, which is worth a discussion in itself, but anyway, that's just a price-setting mechanism which doesn't relate directly to physical at all. It's just people speculating on the price of gold or silver. But the short position in silver was a 23-year record high. The largest number of people had sold silver short, meaning they think it's going to go down in 23 years. The position was that big. And that got my attention as to what we're talking about today, because I thought, golly... <laughs> If you can buy something that world history tells you always comes back and comes back and comes back again, gold and silver money seem to always return when everything else fails. And if you can buy silver today when nobody in the world seems to want it, it might be a pretty good time to look. So when you think about saving money for the future, silver, does it fit the category of interest? You're asking a good question, which just came to me this morning, I'm sorry to say. But the answer is that we have, you and I and everyone in this country has been interested in making money. 
the whole economy, the whole culture is designed around how much money can you make, how much do you earn, where can you get a better job. So we've been involved all of our lives in making money. And I think maybe at this point in time, we should be looking at what will we need rather than how much more money do we want. And if you think of need, then a silver coin or a gold coin obviously come into focus very quickly because in really impossible times where everything is changing daily. This morning, they were accusing Trump of giving secrets to the Russians. Two days ago, they were accusing him of treason because he had fired the FBI director. I've never seen America up in the air, nor the world, with more change more rapidly and not answers that you and I can answer. And you say, wait a minute, I might just need something simple, and if I can buy it when nobody else wants it, a silver coin is money, real money. It's physical. I control it. And on top of that, other people accept it and know what it is. And as you just mentioned, it's used all over the world. So it's kind of an interesting time. Let's talk about scenarios. You know, we've got the Trump administration, kind of an X factor in play. We don't know what policies will either be announced or, you know, what will actually plausibly be pushed through. Maybe signing statements and executive orders will accelerate the trend if he gets very much pushback from the legislatures. So, I mean, let's say we hit Trump's target. 3% annual growth. It's a success story. Does silver fit in that scenario? It surely does. See, that's the most exciting part of the whole silver story at the moment. And you and I are on the same page. You can look at two things that may happen ahead, and I surely don't know which it'll be. Maybe President Trump will be successful and get growth in our economy back up to 3 or 4%, which means that industry will be humming and people will be moving and everything will be working the way it should. And the amazing part, if I'm answering your question correctly, is that silver is a -a one-of-a-kind metal. It is a franchise in Warren Buffett's terms. It's used in the technology area more and more every year all over the world in technology products. And on top of that, you and I both know we can talk later about it, is in short supply. The short supply comes about from the fact that silver is found on the surface of the earth, while gold, they can go a mile deep and find gold a mile deep in the earth. So most of the silver is open to man's exploration, and a lot of it has already been found. Silver Institute comes out and says we have probably 17 years left of mining silver, and the grade, the amount of ounces per ton go down every year because it's harder and harder to find, and there's less and less silver available. So that in a boom time, as you expressed, which I think President Trump wants, silver would be an industrial metal in high demand, and at the moment nobody's talking about it, so it would seem like it would fit. From the Silver Institute, one of the categories of growth from last year to this year was in the area of photovoltaic demand. And it was a pretty big increase. As a percentage, it was monstrous. But in terms of millions of ounces used per year, that is an area where as people continue to want clean energy, as people continue to improve the quality of cells that collect energy from the sun, it's interesting. Silver is smack dab in the middle of that. I think that really makes sense. And I've sat and looked at this. Silver might be one of the few things you could look at at what seems to be a bargain basement price. I mean, the price is quite low. We can discuss whether we think that's right or not. But certainly from an investor standpoint, the price is very, very low. If the economy picks up, which I think is an awfully big if, but a possibility certainly with Trump, Silver demand will go up from the industrial side. That's the beauty of silver versus gold. Silver is an industrial metal. Gold isn't anywhere near that much an industrial metal, at least at this point. However, if things don't turn out quite right, and I could name 20 different crises out there, all different, that might affect 
the economy, America, the world in the next year or two or three, if it doesn't work out quite right, silver and gold turn out to be the two base metals that have been around. You can look back at Rome in the year of Christ was born, and the Romans had a silver coin, and 300 years later they had diluted and diluted and diluted the silver coin down to the point where they had no silver left in the coin. So you can go back in history and look, and again, silver and gold have been the last man standing when it comes to a monetary value that people can hold and possess in their own hands. And silver, if everything went wrong, and if we went to a cashless society, which we may well do, would be a representative of something physical that people could use in barter if all of a sudden a cashless society wasn't working too smoothly. So best case scenario, Trump's right. We get 3% or he's not right. He just is lucky and gets what he wants. Worst case scenario is we have sort of the resolution of financial excess, which if you're a student of financial history, would say you either have classic default or the historically predictable inflation and maybe even inflation in an advanced stage. You know, we've got central banks who've put out a concerted effort to stave off deflation, and they've fought it furiously. Perhaps that shows up in a final scenario as superinflation, high levels of inflation, hyperinflation, we don't know. The classic default would take us the other direction, deflationary contagion spreading through the frailties in a very leveraged financial system. And you would make the case that you don't care, one, two, or three, one very positive outcome, two potential negatively outcomes, silver still has a very interesting play. Well, you're back to the basic concept of investing, and that is you want to own today what people are going to need in the future. And I guess you'd say whether the economy picks up and grows fast or whether the economy collapses in a debt collapse, you would need silver in either case, perhaps, <laughs> more than any other kind of financial asset you could think of. I've talked about that before, the fact gold is an amazing store of value, and we all know that, and we've been working on that for many, many years. I started investing in gold stocks in 1968, so I've been conscious of gold as a stock market investment for some time. But the catch at this point is gold, if we were to have a financial problem, and if we had a default on the bond markets, the price of gold, I guess, if you listen to other people or if you listen to me, you can put any number on it you want. It could be 5000 10000 or $20,000 an ounce. My point would be that at that point, you couldn't take it to a farmer's market and buy some food. At that point in time, a silver coin, on the other hand, even a silver dime, a silver dime today costs about a buck thirty-five, I think, a dollar thirty-five for one of those old silver dimes. You could take the silver dime to a market and buy food for the next week. You might need that silver coin as a currency. That was the whole exciting part of this that I was thinking about when I told you I'd like to talk about silver. You know, so we have things to consider, and I don't know if these are short-term considerations, long-term considerations. You and I think in terms of the free markets, and we think in terms of markets that are driven by supply and demand. In the modern era, however, we've got something that's almost supplanted and replaced the free markets, the capital markets. They drive everything. And basically what it's done is put credit and debt in the driver's seat. And instead of our traditional concept, if you go back to Economics 101, where demand and supply balance each other out and price is sort of the adjudicator, we have excess demand created through our fiat system. And then, of course, through a fractional reserve banking system, that allows for even greater leveraging of the underlying monetary base. So are the old rules out? Do we have new rules which allow the Federal Reserve to kind of guide the economy forward, where, again, supply and demand doesn't matter? We just see an infinite 
repricing to the upside of all financial assets because, again, capital markets are in control. It's no longer a question of supply and demand. And if capital markets are in control, it's just a question of how much money will be printed and where it will flow. That's right. And I'm sorry because I just happen to be of that age, but that's the scariest part of everything we talk about because I look out my window at most of my neighbors. The guy across the street flies an airplane for United. I can take him and work my way all up and down the street. And most of the people at this point, having read about a $20 trillion current deficit in the United States or maybe knowing that we have over $100 trillion of future promises for Social Security, for Medicare, Medicaid, that type of thing. Those numbers are so big, if you ever sat and tried to write down a trillion just and saw how many zeros it was, you'd say, I don't think I care anymore. And so I'd say that people have really turned away from that in that it's so over our heads that they just decide either to live for today or take for granted what we've got, which has been so easy for so long that I guess tomorrow will be just like today, won't it? (laughs) And in that case, I'd say the changes we see happening in the world would tell me the change will be amazing in America. It has to be. While President Obama was president, they doubled the debt from 10 to $20 trillion on the current balance sheet. At some point, people will wake up, and if we don't, obviously other nations are, and they're saying, gee, if you can print money like that, then why would I want to sell you anything? The money isn't worth the paper it's printed on. That's kind of a dire prediction, but I think history would tell you that could happen. Well, so again, the amount of debt that you have, you can maintain it if you have a steady income. And for our economy, that means you need to continue to see economic growth to be keeping up with those debt payments and obligations. When you see cracks within the economic system in terms of activity, where there's a slowdown in economic activity, it's sort of the front edge. It's an indicator that maybe you won't be able to service the debt. At least that's hypothetically the concern. We had housing starts in April. Those were down several percentage points. After being down considerably in March, and it's just a small crack, but it's a crack in consumer mortgage finance. What about auto lending? We've noted this before, that there's a tightening within the auto lenders, and of course, we're starting to see used autos hit the market at very low numbers. Again, it's just a small crack within consumer finance, but remember that consumer spending is also two-thirds of our economic activity, right? So That's a really important thought. I think it is. Here we are, you know, trying to judge the direction of the economy, and I think you very fairly have said, maybe we have a success story in the makings. Not exactly sure how it comes together, but by nook or crook, if we get a 3% growth rate in GDP, everybody be happy, and the stock market will rage, and silver may have its place in that event. Worst case scenario, however, you still have your bases covered. Well, when you look at those debt numbers and you realize how big they are and how fast they're growing, I think President Trump is a very positive and a very bright person, but I think he's behind the curve, personally. It's easy for me to say out here in Colorado. He's behind the curve in relation to the debt and how to ever take out of that debt. So we hope the rest of the world will go along with us. We've had the reserve currency of the world in the dollar for many, many years now, and it's been a lot of fun. Nixon got off of the gold standard in 71, so the dollar no longer is backed by anything other than a promise of the United States having the biggest military force on Earth, which we do. We spend as much on military, our country does, as every other nation on Earth combined. So at the moment, as I see it, we first had a gold-backed dollar, then we had an oil-backed dollar in our partnership with Saudi Arabia, and now we have a military-backed dollar. And I think those are very dangerous times, any way you'd look at it. Then the most exciting thing I thought about this morning was the fact that we spend that much money on defense and on money, and yet the thing we're most afraid of is a terrorist who either has a rapid-firing rifle, a Molotov cocktail, or perhaps he can take over an airline and crash it into a big building. 
this is amazing that our fear is of a primitive attack, and yet we spend more and more money on the most sophisticated armaments in the world. So the debt picture is hard to add up that it really makes sense. And therefore, a silver coin that you can hold in your own possession might be a pretty good idea. You know, it's interesting. You had this conversation with our boys over the weekend. It's that time of the year. Two cows went to market, and the cows that we keep in the herd are the ones that we give affectionate names to, and they're usually heifers. And the bulls, we've already got enough bulls, and they're the ones that get named after some form of a hamburger or roast beef or what have you. And so each of my boys sold a cow. My older son was a little upset because his was skinny. It was awfully skinny this year, and it didn't yield quite as much. But both of them were wanting to wheel and deal. This is Sunday night. They wanted to wheel and deal on Sunday night, and they said, okay, so what's the price of silver? And I said, oh, it's about 16.50 and they said wow last time we bought it was $18 that's great we get to buy a few more ounces for them there's a savings plan in mind they like silver what you're talking about is you're dealing in something on both sides that people need i mean food is obvious yeah. and, and if you're looking ahead at the future you'd say if i can't buy a silver coin i would sure like to have a small farm somewhere you can come up with a lot of different answers but if you start to have questions about the money and your trust in the money then your basic needs become very very important and to focus on need i think might be the investment area to look at now well, and that, that's what you said earlier. We've asked the question and we continue to ask a question that doesn't have a specific answer. How much do we want? And there's an infinite inclination driven by greed to leave that unanswered and just continue to move the goalposts. If it's $100,000 a year in income, maybe it's a million dollars a year in income. If it's a million dollars in net worth, maybe it's $10 million in net worth. Whatever it is, we can always move the goalpost if the question driving the conversation is, how much do we want? And you're asking the question, reframing completely, saying, what will we need? And that's a totally different way of looking at things. And that would be the only thing I could conclude on in, in talking about this, which is really fun. You could talk the rest of the week about it, and that is, we think maybe we're on the edge of dramatic change. Here in America, here in my neighborhood, the culture is certainly different from anything I've known before. People's interests are way different from anything that I had or my dad had. So we know there's change and it's coming faster and faster. And as you look at that, you're saying, wait a minute, I have to fit into this. Where do I fit? Well, the question there becomes a lot of fun because you say, if I do see change coming, what would be something that people will need two years or three years from now? I would give you two examples. I think a silver dollar for barter or a silver dime for barter might be an idea. And then I would say, if your son wants to become a plumber, that's a pretty good idea. We've had a neighbor and my daughter in the last month have both had their sewage lines clog up between their house and the street. <laughs> and this sounds pretty common, but in both cases, the plumbers came out, and in a day and a half, they fixed it. And in both cases, they charged them $5,000. And I, I've thought about it since it happened, and I thought, golly, when your sewer line plugs up, you're at the mercy of the guy who can fix it. Now, there must be a lot of opportunities like that coming where people will still have a need and not be able to do it themselves. And that would be the exciting part of business as we look ahead, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, a few months ago, you sent me a chart of silver by Ronald Rosen. I don't know if you remember that. He was arguing for a replay of the 1970s, looking at an annual logarithmic chart of silver. What do you think of the catalysts that take us into the third digit for silver? And are we really talking about just an extension of the trend, long-term devaluation of the dollar, just being 
accelerated and shrunk where time gets compressed and all of a sudden instead of the long journey from a dollar thirty an ounce back in the twenties to sixteen dollars an ounce or for silver from twenty dollars to its high here recently of nineteen hundred that's a story of currency devaluation i mean are we talking just about the monetary ponzi scheme see i think i would just give a plug because it's a fellow i know doug noland has been writing the credit bubble bulletin I think since 1997 or 98, and I for some reason just happened to latch onto it at that point. And Doug writes a letter every week, believe it or not, updating on credit, money markets, and where they're at. And as you watch and go through that, he's amazing in the detail and in the update that he gives you, which gives you a perspective on what is really happening. You don't see those numbers anywhere else, and you don't see those ideas anywhere else. But the point I would make in answer to your question is that monetary growth and debt growth have been exponential. That's a big name, and it's a big word. And basically that means that while it took 50 years, well, I remember silver being a dollar and a quarter back in 1966. And I remember the Hunt brothers had cornered the market, and silver got up to 50 bucks an ounce. And that happened in 1979. So in answer to your question, obviously there are many unknowns that could change the price of physical gold or physical silver and to my way of thinking, in terms of Warren Buffett or anyone else or of, of the ever-current portfolio, silver would be one of those that has the highest potential for gain and the lowest risk factor that I could find. All right. So you're a classic, what I would describe as a position broker. Forty years ago, this is what you were doing, where you would research an idea, a company, a management team, a growth trajectory within the economy, you triangulate, you would build a position and work us into what that looks like for silver today. My son reminded me of it this morning. It was really interesting. At Dean Witter, I was a broker. I was buying silver and gold stocks up in Canada at that time. That was one of the local points back in the 69, 70, 71 era. And it looked so good to me as a broker that on the side, I went out and tried to get each of my clients, I got about 15 of them, to buy a bag of uncirculated silver dollars. The banks had always given away silver dollars to open an account back then in Denver, so they had bags of uncircled silver dollars. I bought those for about 15 clients, didn't charge them any commission or anything, just said, I think you ought to set these aside. They're a good idea. We were paying $5,000 a bag, $5 a coin for a Morgan or for an uncirculated Morgan or Peace dollar. I obviously set some of those aside for myself at that time. And Chuck reminded me this morning, in that era between then and when he was probably seven or eight years old then, by the time he and his three sisters went to college, I sold a bag of silver dollars for $26 a coin. That was 26000 And I sold a half bag, believe it or not, to ICA for $52 a coin. <laughs> and those silver dollars paid the entire cost of our four kids going to college. So... I speak from past experience that at least once these things have come true, and it would seem like we might be on the edge of seeing that happen again. Is that any kind of an answer? It is. And I mean, so what we're asking is what we will need, and a need could be a variety of things. A need could be what you anticipate as a supplement to retirement income. A need could be what you anticipate as college tuition. A need may be, I mean, fill in the blanks, but you answer that question, do the math, and see what that equates to in ounces today. And it's a different way of savings. You know, in my own mind, if people had savings, that's a good question because most people don't save anymore. Most people can't save anymore. So you're talking to a rarefied group of people who still save money or who try to save money. But if they did, it depends on the level of their savings. But I would certainly think that anybody should have five 
boxes, a box of, of silver eagles is 500 coins. And I, if it were me and I were 40 years old and could afford it, I'd have five boxes of silver eagles just in case. Number one, it would be a godsend if the money system goes kaflooey. Number two, it probably will turn out, since they're totally out of favor at the moment, to be a very fine investment as far as the price going up, even if you don't need them. So I think that would be something I'd look at. I think many people probably can't afford that, and they should be in junk silver. Junk silver refers to silver dimes, silver quarters, and silver half dollars. Certainly people can set a few of those aside. It lets you sleep easier at night. It would seem that way to me. Well, I, I agree. I think one thing that I don't have the clear memory on is that particular investment going up tenfold. It's amazing yeah. when it happens. <laughs> But you've seen it. Obviously, you've seen it in multiple asset classes, but you've also seen it in silver and understand the circumstances that drive it. And that it's actually in a short period of time when it occurs that it occurs. So, Jim, you saw the run from 66 to 79 when you were selling and it went even a little further into 1980 and sold it at $50. I mean, this morning, I remember walking down the street, 17th Street, which is where all the banks and brokerage firms were. I had just bought a half a bag of circulated silver dollars from a, a stockbroker, believe it or not, who worked for Merrill Lynch. And I was walking down the street and I met a neighbor. And of course, the street was crowded with people. And he said, Jim, there you are. What are you doing? Carrying your money? <laughs> Carrying your money to the bank. Little did you know that I had silver dollars inside that bag. It was amazing. And it worked out pretty well. I think the main thing today is it's exciting. You can either get very glum about this picture or you can get kind of enthused about it. And I would be enthused. I'd say cultures change, people change. If you look at history, if you look at today, if you look at our lives, you see opportunity that you never saw before. Ray Crop was a malt machine salesman out in California. He recognized that two brothers, McDonald brothers up in San Francisco, were selling a lot of hamburgers, and on top of that, they were wearing out their malt machines about three times or four times as fast as anybody else. He went up and talked to them and said, can't we open a franchise and try to build some of these somewhere else? And the brothers said, no, we don't want to do it, but we'll give you the rights to go ahead and try. So we know what happened with McDonald's. The same thing exactly happened, and these are fun because you're interpreting how a culture changes. The same thing happened with Howard Schultz at Starbucks. Howard Schultz, when he graduated from college, went to work for a company in New York City that sold coffee grinding machines all over the country. This was years later, and he saw exactly the same thing. He saw that there were two brothers up in Seattle that were selling coffee and wearing out their grinders four times as fast as anybody else. So he said, I'm going to go up and see what they're doing. And, of course, the long and the short of it is he quit his job, went to work for them, offered them to be a partner, and they said no. Then he went on a buying trip to Italy, and he said, what are all those people doing up and down the street? And they said, oh, they all stop in the middle of the morning to have a latte. And Howard said, what's a latte? These are amazing stories. And these come about from change. So Howard Schultz came back and said, I want to build some coffee shops. The brother said, that's the dumbest thing you can do. Coffee shop never made any money. Howard Schultz said, number one, I got something called a latte that nobody's seen. Number two, I've got the idea that people are seeking community. They don't get to talk to each other. And one thing about a coffee shop is when you go in, you all sit down and talk together. The rest is history. I mean, you can see what happened with that. So I look ahead and think those same kind of opportunities are maybe hidden, or maybe if we start to look, we'll see them today. And in the money business, it strikes me that a silver coin might be one of those very well could be the same thing. Well, it strikes me as very important that how we save 
for the future is sort of in the middle of this conversation. And although we can't anticipate the exact ways that culture changes and continues to morph or what opportunities will look like, having the reserves and resources to be able to press in and on the basis of value exchange, do something about that is very critical. I mentioned to you at the beginning of our, our conversation today a friend who's in town, and we talked about sort of the time that he gives his employees to continue their education and how that is, for me, it's a no-brainer in terms of an investment. I learned about value exchange and silver when I was six years old from that gentleman who exchanged a cookie tin full of dimes for a beautiful Trans Am. Convertible Trans Am, and this was, you know, for a six-year-old boy, I'm absolutely mesmerized. We drove away, and I'll never forget thinking, I don't even know what the cookie tin had in it, but I want one of those cookie tins and whatever was inside, because you can get a Trans Am, a gold Trans Am, special edition, with the flaming wings on the front hood, and I mean, it was absolutely spectacular doing that same thing, you know, for thousands of years, when times got tough or different, all of a sudden, a silver or a gold coin appears again, and and you can do what you just explained, right? Well, that's right. And that happened to be in the time frame of around 1980. I mean, silver was trading at very high levels, and it made absolute sense to be taking your silver, or gold in that case, and exchanging them for other stuff, using them as money... Which is to the point, what is the primary object of owning gold and silver? In my opinion, it's the best substitute for cash. And that is the best form, I think, of saving money for the future. It's probably Not the knowing... most recognized you could get. I would agree with you, wouldn't you? Absolutely the most recognized. And I get excited about the future. I think I know that 90% of the tires, rubber tires that we use in our cars now, come from outside of America. So I could tell you, David, forget the gold and silver. Let's just build a warehouse and store up a bunch of tires because people are going to need tires someday. And if world trade breaks down like I think it might, when they don't quite know what the right currency is going to be to make a trade with one country to another, if our warehouse of tires is still there, people are going to need rubber tires and we'll be in business. Now, see, there will be a lot of creative new thinking. Some will work and some won't. But it's a heck of a lot of fun to try, right? It is, Jim. Thanks for joining us again. We appreciate your insights and perspective. Thank you so much. You guys have a good day. One of the things I love about this place, Dave, is the history. Okay, you know, you're talking about someone who, when you were six, you got a chance to see the value of a tin box of silver. Okay, and you know, you're talking to Jim Deeds, somebody that you also knew going back into your single-digit years. Okay, these are people who know. These are people who have seen these things happen. You know, I don't think on either occasion, either of these people would tell you to buy silver so that you could get rich. They're basically saying, look, this is something that you need. This is a way that you can spend when money, the money that we now know today, doesn't work anymore. Well, that's right. The only change that's occurred in our family is that today it's cigar boxes instead of cookie tents. <laughs> and it's your kids right now who are, I mean, down to four years old as far as doing the trades, right? Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. We'll see you next Wednesday. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ICA Gold for our latest updates and market thoughts. You can also follow David personally if you just go to at David McIlvaney. If you want to learn more about us and what we do, visit us online at McIlvaney.com or give us a call at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. 
you should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.